This morning we're going to be picking up where we left off last week. And as we go through the rest of this chapter, we'll be seeing one, we'll be seeing how one ministry came to an end and how another one began. And that's why I titled this morning's message where one ends, another begins. So before we get into the word, let's open up with the word of prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us all here this morning. Thank you for having us, for accepting our worship. Lord, thank you for being here with us. Um, I pray that this morning's message will be spirit-filled, Lord. May you work powerfully in this room this morning. Pour your spirit into each of the hearts of every person that's here. We want to hear from you this morning. So open our hearts, open our ears, Lord. So meet us, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3 this morning. Luke chapter 3, verse 15. And the word of God says, Now the people were waiting expectantly, and all of them were questioning in their hearts whether John might be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I am is coming. I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with fire that never goes out. Then along with many exhortations, he proclaimed good news to the people. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the evil things he had done, Herod added this to everything else. He locked up John in prison. Again, last week, we looked at the impact John's message was having on both the crowds who came out to see him and individuals who wanted specific guidance. The way he taught and the way he preached was so remarkable that many started to look at him differently and wonder if he might be the Messiah. Could he be the one we've been, they've been waiting for? Could this man dressed in camel's hair and a leather belt be the promised Messiah whom God would anoint to deliver them from Rome and restore the kingdom of Israel? Now, it, if you look at it carefully, it makes logical sense that the people would begin to ask these questions. Now, let me give you a few examples why. He attracted a great following. A lot of people came to see him. They wanted to hear him. They wanted to see what this wild-looking man from the wilderness was all about. He had a way of speaking, his, his presentation. Uh, it was just people were attracted to it. And his teaching was unlike any of the religious leaders that lived at that time. People's hearts and lives were being changed after they were being baptized. 
And on top of all that, many, many more were anticipating the Messiah, the Messiah's coming because of the stories they'd been hearing for several years. Now, John could have played the role for a bit and given them what they wanted in order to get more people to come out and hear his message. However, John was a man of integrity and godly principles. So instead of culti cultivating his own personality, instead of saying, yeah, you know what, come, come and look at me and come see what we're doing and, and all that, no, he pointed to somebody else. In his commentary, Thomas Koch wrote this, there, and speaking about the people, their expectations therefore being raised to a very high pitch, they began to think that he might be the Christ and were ready to acknowledge him as such so that they had, so that, so that had he inspired after grandeur, he might at least for a while have possessed honors greater than any of the sons of men could justly claim. But the Baptist was too strictly virtuous and holy to assume what he had no title to. And therefore, he declared plainly that he was not the Messiah, but the lowest of servants, one sent to prepare the way before him. John, therefore, he clearly knew and accepted the fact that his main mission was to prepare the way for the one who is more powerful than him. This is why he didn't have a problem telling people how weak and insignificant he was compared to the coming one. To illustrate his point, he tells, that he tells them, he tells the people that he didn't even consider himself qualified to untie the straps of his sandals. Now, at, at the time, only a slave would do the dirty job of untying the sandals caked with mud, <coughs> dirt, and all the other gross stuff that you can imagine that people would step on, on these roads that, um, from Galilee uh, and Judea. And it was considered, so it was considered an insult for a Hebrew to require this from another Hebrew. And a Hebrew's pride prevented him from doing as such. So here's what John wanted him to understand. The coming one would be so much greater than him that he didn't even consider himself worthy to touch or to serve the humble slave goes on to explain how his ministry will differ from that of the Messiah's. John baptized with water as an outward expression of true inward repentance. But Christ's baptism would consist of a twofold ministry. First of all, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. This baptism is what sets believers apart as belonging to God and incorporates them into the body of Christ and empowers them to do God's work. And secondly, 
he, he will baptize with fire. This is a baptism of judgment, which purges and burns those who rejected him or those who reject him when he returns at the second coming. Now, to make it easier to understand, John used an agricultural illustration to explain the meaning of those two type of baptisms. He pointed, he painted a picture of a farmer who took a large fork-shaped shovel and tossed the grain up in the air. The heavy grain that fell to the threshing floor, that would be gathered up and prepared for use. The lighter shaft, the dust, all the other stuff that flew off in the breeze would be swept up and burned because it was just useless. It was, it was just almost like dirt and dust. And what do you do with it? You sweep it up and, and throw it out. Well, here again, that shaft was burnt up. Likewise, what we're going to see at Jesus' second coming, we're going to see people divided into two camps. The people of the Spirit, who he'll gather up into his eternal kingdom, and unbelievers who will be swept up and burned with fire, with a fire that never goes out. And if you think about it, if you look closely, this refers to the eternal lake of fire mentioned in Revelation chapter 20. After he mentions that, he begins to summarize John's ministry in verse 18. So in addition to preaching repentance, we're told that he also comforted and encouraged. But it also says that he did one more thing. He did one more thing in addition to exhorting. He proclaimed good news to the people. Thus, from what Luke has told us here, John's ministry consisted of the following. He preached. He preached a baptism for the forgiveness of sins to the people. He prepared. He prepared hearts and minds of the people for the, for the arrival of the Messiah. He exhorted. He exhorted the people with words of comfort and encouragement. And he taught. He taught people about life, righteousness, and, that, and the salvation that would come through the coming Messiah. That's what he did. That was his ministry. Now, in the last two verses of our passage this morning, we're told about John the Baptist's arrest and his incarceration. When it came to standing up for truth, John, he, he didn't have a problem calling people out for their sinful behavior, regardless of how small or how great, how rich, how powerful, you know, what their positions were at that time. If the Roman emperor were standing before him, I'm sure that he would call him out, call him out for his sinfulness, his hypocrisy his wickedness. Now, 
at that time, the only person that was there was Herod the Tetrarch. And in his case, he called them out for divorcing his wife so that he could marry his brother's wife. Now the details about this relationship is found in Matthew chapter 14, verse 3, if you want to go over that. But according to Leviticus 18, 16, this type of relationship, this action was forbidden. And it was a clear violation of the Mosaic law. So what was the best way for someone in authority to avoid embarrassment and to keep the truth from being exposed? You've got to shut them up. You've got to keep them quiet. You've got to keep them away from the people, from speaking truth to the people. And that's an, another example there that when you start speaking truth, real deep spiritual truth, people are going to want to quiet you. People are going to want to isolate you. People are going to want to just leave him there. He's crazy. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And there are times it's going to feel very lonely. But as we will see, or as we know, John remained faithful. He didn't give up. It's like, I don't care what they say, and I don't care if they want to shut me out or shut me, shut me up. I'm going to continue proclaiming the truth. This is the kind of heart that God wants us to have. Is this the kind of heart that you have as well? Are you okay with speaking the truth even though you might lose friends, even though you might lose loved ones? Now there's a way, again, to, to speak truth in love, but also powerfully. Again, we have to remember the kind of teacher, the kind of preacher John was. He was, his main thing, his main mission, what he was doing was preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So although he was calling Herod out, we have to assume, we have to believe that he was also telling him, hey, you can repent. You need to repent of your sins. You need to ask for forgiveness. Come and get baptized. But all Herod heard was that truth that kept stinging him in the heart, that kept stinging him in the brain. And, and I'm sure as time went on, it kept bugging him. It kept him just, he needed to do something about it. We're also told, well, we're also told in, in, in Matthew that his wife, his new wife, was also bothered by it. And when the wife starts pressuring you to do something, it's, it's hard to get away from. You're going to want to do something so she, so she stays, so, so she gets off your case. So both of them, both of them knew the truth. Both of them knew it was wrong, or else they wouldn't be bothered. So again, they had to shut him up. And the best way to do it was to just find charges against them and imprison him. Well, this is what Herod did. 
when he locked up John in prison and subsequently putting an end to his public ministry. After that, we don't really hear much of John anymore. We, there is another story about him that we might get to later on, but for the most part, that was it. And later on, we'll find out, we'll be reading about how while he was incarcerated, he was murdered. All for what? For just simply, simply proclaiming the truth. Are you ready for that? Now, in case there's any confusion, scholars calculate that John's imprisonment occurred roughly around 18 months after the start of Jesus' public ministry. So what Luke, what Luke is doing here, this, is not, this isn't necessarily a chronological order of things. What he's doing here is that he's wrapping up the discussion of John, his discussion of John's ministry before moving on to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Nevertheless, John faithfully, what we see is that John faithfully completed his God-given assignment by preparing the people to meet the Messiah, the Son of God. And he did it faithfully, he did it obediently, and he did it, bold, he did it boldly, even in the face of opposition. Before Christ came, John showed us how to do it. John showed us how to be bold, how to be faithful, how to be obedient. In this story, the end of John the Baptist's ministry marks the beginning of a new one, a story that will change mankind forever. Mankind would never be the same. But before we look into the beginning of that story, I wanted to just mention a few more things that I noticed in this passage. And again, it has to do with ministry and ministry leaders. When it comes to serving in ministry, here are three things to look for that might, that might tell you if the motives of your heart or the motives of someone else's heart is in the right place. A person with a heart of ministry wants a person with a heart of ministry always point to Jesus instead of pointing to themselves. They won't point to themselves. Everyone, this means that everyone must ask themselves, what are my motives behind serving? What is the reason why I'm doing this? Is it to make a name for myself? Is it to make money? Are you doing ministry because you want to be rich? Now, we also, you also have to ask yourself, if your motive, motive is to gain power or influence, is your motive to point people to Jesus in order to build the kingdom of God? 
Is that your reason? Is that the only reason, that should be the only reason for being involved in ministry, whether again it's in marriage ministry, whether it's um, worship ministry, whether it's kids ministry, youth ministry, whether it's cleaning the church, what administrative, all that. It should be to point to Jesus. It should be to build the kingdom of God, to point people, to direct people, to guide people to the cross in order to be saved, to build the kingdom of God. Now, doing the latter may mean never having any of the former. If your main reason, if your motive is just the point to Christ, then yeah, more than likely, you gotta consider the possibility that you won't have any of that other stuff. You're not gonna have, you're not gonna be, a, you're not gonna be popular, you're not gonna make a name for yourself. You're maybe not, maybe you won't be rich. And maybe you won't have power or influence. You may just, you may just have you to serve in a small village in some third world country or serving even here at the soup pantry or um, at the homeless shelter. You may not have those things. A person with a heart of ministry accepts their weaknesses and limitations. And here we see that with John as well. We currently live in a society that says, if you, want to pee, if you want to be top dog, if you want to be number one, if you want to be on the, the highest rung of the social ladder, then you're going to do whatever it takes to get there. You're going to step over those who are weak. You're going to step on those who are weak. You're going to play dirty to those who are trying to get there as well. It's, it's survival of the fittest. Well, let me tell you again that that's not what the Bible tells us. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. We must accept our limitations. We must accept our weaknesses. When you can accept the situation you're in, you will be more likely to look to the one who is greater and more powerful than you. And thirdly, a person with a heart of ministry will comfort, encourage, and speak truth regardless of the consequences. You may have a heart of ministry if that's what you enjoy doing. If you, get a, if you have a joy of just wanting to be there for people, to comfort them when they're going through a hard time, to encourage them 
when things are things are rough. And I'm not I don't mean like having a joy like yeah you feel great that they're going through this stuff, but there is a certain satisfaction about doing it. You you know that this is what God has called you. You're ministering to that person. And you know that it's the right thing and, and doing the right thing, doing what God is called you, calling you to do. Again, there's a certain satisfaction there. And then when they get out of that hole, when they get out of that mess, there's, yeah, there's joy. I've seen people. I've ministered to the people that have been in deep, deep holes. And when the Lord brings them out victoriously, it's just beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful to see that. Well, at this point of Luke's gospel, a transition takes place. So that as, so as John's uh, ministry fades out of the picture for now, that of Jesus fades in. So let's go back to our Bibles and read the next just two verses of our passage, beginning in verse 21. Luke chapter 3, verse 21. When all the people were baptized, Jesus also was baptized. As he was praying, heaven opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him, in a physical appearance like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. In just two verses, Luke informs us about a, a glorious event that took place prior to Jesus, prior to Jesus beginning his public ministry, his baptism. One day after everyone had been baptized, Jesus presented himself for baptism at the Jordan. Now Matthew chapter 3 says that at first John didn't want to do it. John didn't want to baptize Jesus because he knew that Jesus of Nazareth was the perfect son of God who didn't need to repent of sin. So why did Jesus allow himself to be, to be baptized like everyone else? Well, he did it to completely identify himself with sinners that he came to save. Now, just to give you another illustration, another example, this would be similar to a wealthy person, someone that has millions and millions of dollars, even billions of dollars, going, through, going to a third world country as a missionary and choosing to live with people in the slums in order to relate to them. See, if people can't relate to someone who doesn't understand their situation, it's not going to impact them as effectively as someone who does. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 9.22. To the weak I became weak in order to win the weak. 
I have become all things to all people so that I may by every possible means save some. Now what else do we see Jesus doing when he was baptized? He was praying. Luke makes it clear here that Jesus communed with his Father through the same channel available to us. Prayer. Time and time again throughout the Gospels, we see that Jesus took time to pray. That's something he did regularly. He, he, he did it often. He would go off by himself and just pray. He would pray with groups. He, he taught the disciples how to pray. That's what he enjoyed doing. This, so as he was being baptized, it was for him, it was just another time, another hour of, of a prayer. He enjoyed it. He enjoyed communion, communing with his father. Do you? Do you enjoy spending time with your heavenly father? Just sitting at his feet and just telling him everything that's going on. Telling him what your concerns are. And do you sometimes sit there in silence, waiting to hear from him? This is what Jesus enjoyed doing. And we ought to, as believers, as Christians, enjoy that time in prayer. Commune with our Father in heaven. When Jesus was baptized, Here's what he was telling everyone with his actions. You've heard the saying before, actions speak louder than words. Well, here's what we see him saying. By going last, he was saying, I see all of you as valuable and important. At the time, Usually the last ones in any line were the crippled, the poor, the homeless, the, the undesirables. Those were the ones who were always at the end. But no, here we have a strong Jesus. We later find out he's in his 30s. But he let everyone go up ahead of him. And this was telling them, I see you as important. You are valuable. This is what he's telling us today. This is what he wants to tell you today. You are valuable. You are important. I died for you. I suffered for you. Do you see that? Do you see that that's what the Lord is saying to you? Do you see yourself as important? He does. By, be, by being baptized, he was saying, I identify with you and understand your situation. I'm here, I'm down here, I know what it's like. I know what you're going through. I understand you. I know what it's like to be hungry. I know what it's like to cry, to be hurt. 
to be in pain and he identifies with you in whatever situation you're in, whatever circumstance you're in. He identifies with you by praying. He was showing them the importance of communion with God. It's important. Ladies and gentlemen, it's important. Prayer is important. Luke then, after that, he tells us three things that happened as he was praying. The first thing that happened was that he opened up. Now this isn't implying that the clouds simply parted ways, but in the original language, it, this means that the sky literally, literally opened up. The sky, the clear blue sky completely opened up. What a scene. To see that must have been jaw-dropping. Now the second thing that happened was that God's Spirit descended on him in a physical appearance like a dove. Thus, when the, when the sky split open, when it opened up, God sent his Spirit to Jesus incarnate as a dove, where Jesus was incarnate as a person. Now also keep in mind that it doesn't say that an actual dove descended on him. But what did descend on him was that it had appearance like a dove. What this implies, what this tell, ought to tell us, ought to tell you is that there were no human words to accurately describe what descended on Jesus, only that it was similar. The best way to describe it was that it was like, the appearance was like a dove. And thirdly, God said this, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. This was God's way of saying, you're my boy. I love you. I am pleased with you. I'm proud of you. You're my son. This voice from heaven left no doubt. This wasn't just another sinner being baptized. This was the sinless, eternal son of God, pleasing the Father by his identification with sinful man. These two verses also show us a couple of other important points. When our Lord came up out of water, the Father spoke from heaven and identified him as his beloved Son. And the, vis and the Spirit visibly came upon Jesus in the form of a dove. So what we see represented here are all three persons of the Trinity. The Son, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and God the Father. This is one of those events that deniers of the Trinity, those who say there, there isn't a Trinity, have a hard time explaining. What we also see here is that this is the first of three recorded occasions when the Father spoke from heaven. The second was when Jesus was transfigured, and we'll cover that when we get to chapter 9 of Luke. And the third was during his last week before cross 
And that is found in John chapter 12. Now this chapter closes with Luke giving us a genealogy of Jesus. So, yeah, let me quickly read that. And if I butcher the names, um, I'm, if, these, if these names were in Spanish, I'm sure I could read them a lot better than, than pronouncing them in Hebrew, but I'll, I'll do my best. So if I butcher them, uh, then you hopefully you'll understand. Verse, Luke chapter 3, verse 23. As he began his ministry, Jesus was about 30 years old and was, and was thought to be the son of Joseph, son of Heli, son of Methat, son of Levi, son of Melchi, son of Janae, son of Joseph, son of Mattathias, son of Amos, son of Nahum, son of Esli, son of Nagai, son of Math, son of Mattathias, son of Samian, son of Josek, son of Joda, son of Joannan, son of Ressa, son of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, son of Neri, son of Melchi, Melchi, son of Adi, son of Kosum, son of Elmadam, son of Ur, son of Joshua, son of Eliezer, son of Joram, son of Mathat, son of Levi, son of Simeon, son of Judah, son of Joseph, son of Jonam, son of Eliakim, son of Melia, son of Mena, son of Matetha, son of Nathan, son of David, son of Jesse, son of Obed, son of Boaz, son of Solomon, son of Nashon, son of Amenadab, son of Ram, son of Hezron, son of Perez, son of Judah, son of Jacob, son of Isaac, son of Abraham, son of Terah, son of Nahor, son of Sarug, son of Reu, son of Peleg, son of Eber, son of Shelah, son of Canaan, son of Arphaxad, Arphaxad, son of Shem, son of Lamech, son of Methuselah, son of Enoch, son of Jared, son of Mahel, Hillel, son of Canaan, son of Enos, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. Before taking up the events of Jesus' public ministry, Luke stops for a minute. He pauses to give some additional background information about our Lord. The first thing he mentioned is that Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his public ministry. Interestingly, the book of Numbers, in the book of Numbers, we're told that this was the age that priests began their ministry. Now, what I also find interesting was that according to 2 Samuel 5.4, David was the same age when he became king of Israel. Now, when it comes to Luke's genealogical history of Jesus, I want to share with you some important information that might explain his purpose for writing it. First of all, throughout this gospel, Jesus is presented as the Son of Man. So he helps us see, he does this to help, to help us see the, minute, the humanity of Jesus by showing us he came from Adam. And as descended of the first man, it also shows that in Jesus, 
God offers salvation to all people, not just to the children of Abraham. Matthew's Gospel is the only other book that also gives us a genealogical account. However, there it only goes as far as Abraham, and its purpose was to present Jesus as king with proper claim to the throne. Secondly, because of what we've been told in the first two chapters, it's widely believed that Luke got this information from Mary and was thus following her physical line. If so, this would then prove Jesus' actual birthright through his mother. Note that in verse 23, verse 23 doesn't say that Jesus was the son of Joseph, but was thought to be the son of Joseph. Now, because it was unusual for women to be named in official genealogies, this may have been the reason why, by Mary, why Luke didn't mention Mary. Again, therefore, if this view is correct, then Heli was the, father, the father-in-law of Joseph and the father of Mary. Now, Matthew's genealogy follows the line of Joseph. Jesus' legal father, establishing Jesus' legal birthright through his father. Thus, these genealogies prove Jesus of Nazareth had both a prophetic and legal right to the Davidic promises. So in a nutshell, by putting the genealogy here, Luke wants us to know that the Son of God was also the son of man. Some have wondered if anyone else could come along and present a valid legal claim to the throne of David. Well, the answer to that is an emphatic no. Now, here's quickly a couple strong reasons why. When the temple was burned in AD 70, all records of Jewish genealogies were destroyed. As a result, all Jews are now unable to trace their genealogies. Also, Jesus never had any children. Therefore, the messianic line ended with him. He was the last of his family line. This, what this means is that Jesus is Lord uniquely, exclusively, and absolutely what we see in this chapter is a brief look into John's ministry we saw how he called a nation to repent and turn back to covenant faithfulness to show care for those in need and to prepare people for the coming of the Messiah instead of pointing to himself he pointed ahead of the coming one who was more worthy than he, him the coming Christ would baptize with spirit and fire, separating the population into the people of spirit and the people waiting for the judgment of fire. Now we're then told that John prays, uh, falls prey to uh, the greedy, proud, and paranoid political leader and then goes to jail and his ministry is complete. However, just as he exits the picture, a 30-year-old Jesus comes in and takes over to fulfill the plan that God had for him. Luke then just gives us one more qualification of Jesus as Messiah. He is 
the Son of God, whose lineage may be traced back through David to Adam and then to God. Throughout their ministries, Jesus and John kept telling the self-righteous, the prideful, the disobedient to repent and ask for forgiveness. So let me ask you, are you willing to hear God's call for your life today? Are you willing to repent, change your course, and become who God calls you to be? This chapter shows us, showed us the deeper meaning of repentance and served as a call for us to prepare to meet Jesus. So here's another question. Are you prepared to meet Jesus? If so, if you are ready to meet Jesus, how will you respond? Will you follow Jesus Christ, the Son of God? Will you do that? This here, this question is the most important question in life. There, nothing else matters. Not, all other things in life don't matter. The, the question that matters is, will you follow Jesus Christ? To put it off is to miss life. To apply it to someone else is to turn a deaf ear to God. To repent and follow Jesus, however, is to find assurance that when you die, you will go to heaven. If that's you, if you want to meet Jesus, and if you want him to change your life, Simply come to him and allow him to enter your heart. And if that's you, wherever you're at, close your eyes and bow your head and pray this prayer with all sincerity. Lord, forgive me of my sins. I'm sorry. I repent. Forgive me for all that I've done. I confess with my mouth you are Lord. Believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. So by faith, I accept your forgiveness. Wash me clean, Lord. Fill me with your spirit so that I may walk with you, so that I may know you. Thank you for making me your child. In Jesus' name, amen.